episode 55, Mommy Burnout and Child Therapy Expert. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trosclair, and today we're Dr. Cheryl Gonzalez-Ziegler's perspective. Join 2017 Podcast Awards-nominated host, Dr. Justin Trosclair, as he gets a rarely seen look into the specialties of all types of doctors and guests, plus marketing, travel tips, struggles, goals, and relationship advice. Let's hear a doctor's perspective. Welcome back. 2018. I hope everybody's having a fantastic start to a new year. I know I sure am. Finally getting the needleless acupuncture book finalized. That's been a been a work in progress, let me tell you. And speaking of books, today we have the author of Mommy Burnout, which will come out in February. She has been on the Today Show, Katie Couric Show, NPR, and a whole bunch of local Denver news channels, sometimes several times a week. She co-owns Denver Child Therapy. Her specialty is children and families. We're going to go over many things like participation awards, eating habits, screen time, aka your phones with kids under five and what that can do for you. Plus, of course, what do kids typically need to see a counselor, a psychologist for? She'll round it out with some really creative marketing ideas and her take on what makes for a good vacation. All the show notes can be found at a doctorsperspective.net slash five five. Let's go hashtag behind the curtain. A doctor's perspective. We are still in America. So excited to have our next guest. We have a Dr. Cheryl Ziegler. She is from Denver, Colorado. She has a new book coming out, I believe in February, called Mommy Burnout. It is my pleasure. I hope we go on some rants today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it is great. I- I've browsed your website, Instagram, Twitter, you know, a little social media stalking, as they call it. <laughs> Loving what I'm seeing. That's why I invited you on the show, and uh, it's going to be great. Uh, but before we jump into your book and your specialty, how did you become Psych D versus all the other things that you could have done? Yeah. Well, I think I was very unusual in that I knew from a very young age I wanted to be in the helping profession. I knew I wanted to listen to people and help people with problems. So essentially, I went to my guidance counselor and said, I want to be a psychologist. What do I need to do? And so in high school, he kind of mapped it out for me and said, you're going to need to do an undergrad, a master's and a doctorate. It's going to be this many years, 10 years. And um, I was like, okay, it was just like, that's what I need to do. So um, I I did an, you know, an undergraduate in psychology of a master's in counseling and my PsyD in psychology, in counseling psychology. And um, I would just say that I knew that some people, if they're listening to this and they're thinking about this, you can get a PhD or a PsyD. And I chose a PsyD because uh, it's a lot more counseling. It's a lot more clinical hands-on versus mm. a PhD. Sometimes that route, people want to do research. They want to write papers. They might want to be a professor. So sometimes that's one of the distinguishing um, factors that makes someone choose a PsyD program over a PhD program. And I'm very happy with the tracks that I chose. Why not just stop in master's? Well, you know, you can do you can do lots of things with a master's. I didn't stop in a master's because I wanted to do some testing. Um, so I wanted to have that evaluation piece. And I wanted to learn more. I wanted to dive deeper. Um, and so I would say that, you know, having a master's for me, I had a master's and then I practiced for two years before starting the doctoral program. And... Um, I was still had a lot to learn. And so I felt like, you know, I definitely was, was good enough and was doing some, some good work, but I felt like, wow. when when the issues got really big or hard for me, I just felt like I wanted more training. So my PsyD program and including um, my APA internship, which is your fourth year, all four of those years, I was literally under a microscope in this fishbowl being live observed or videoed every session for four years. Oh, my gosh. So you get a lot of feedback and so much has changed, you know. So I grew a lot because of that. It's hard work. It's hard. Every word that you say is criticized or your body language or did you have good rapport with a client? All of that was criticized, but um, it was all constructive and very helpful. So that's uh, that's how I came to be where I am. I can't even imagine being criticized that often because, oh my goodness, 
But it, it's what you need to do. I guess the first couple of weeks is probably brutal. And then after that, you start accepting the change and accepting what they're saying. And like, all right, let me, how can I improve it in this area? Yeah. And it's not just, it's like a professor and your cohort and, and cohorts in doctoral level programs are generally very small. So mine was six or seven of us. So it's this really intimate wow. group and everybody's live observing you. <laughs> um, so it was, you know, and everybody of course always tries to point out positives, but it's human nature. You hear seven positive things and one constructive thing and you focus on that constructive piece or, Oh man, I miss that. You know? Um, so I don't, I don't, uh, envy students in those positions, but I've been there and, um, boy, do you learn a lot, right? When you, when you work with such a diversity and that's the cool thing too. Um, being in that kind of program, I worked, you work with adults, couples, families, kids. Um, so it's great training. So then what did you ultimately become a specialist in? Um, I put my focus is on children and families. So, um, you know, you do your three years in, in a doctoral program on, you know, just everybody. And then you apply for internships and you have to get matched. There's like a whole match day. Um, and I wanted to just focus on kids. So it was great. I got my wow. first choice. And so I've always really just focused on kids. Even after my master's program, I worked with adolescent males. Um, I've always just really had a kid focus. And then one of the things I talk about, it's actually in the intro of my book, Mommy Burnout. It says, I've been working with kids my whole career. You might be wondering, why am I writing a book about moms? But you can't work with kids effectively without working with their families. If you want to get the mm. most change out of kids, you've, you, it's a family system. It's a systems kind of issue. So I'm very interested in family systems and got a lot of training in family work as well. When I was looking on your site, I saw some fun things that I think kids and drugs are bad, uh, peer pressure, eating habits. We kind of just mimic what our parents do. So if they snack all day on trash, guess what you're probably going to do? Uh, based on other interviews, games, screen time, like iPhones and all that kind of stuff, uh, participation awards. You can kind of talk about all that stuff. Do any of these things you want to chat about real quick? Be my guest, especially the screens. I've heard some crazy stuff that what, before you're five, you shouldn't even touch a screen because it really messes with actually how your brain develops. I don't know if that's still accurate, but anyway, you can talk now, please. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And this this certainly could be its own podcast, but I would just say in general, I mean, I literally just got out of a session right now as I ran to you. And what we ended on was, okay, mom and dad, so are you ready to um, say that there's no screen time on school nights and that there is you know, we're going to limit to two hours a day on Saturday and Sunday. Now that's, I mean, then these are middle school aged children that they have. That is a tall order to ask somebody these days. But what I'm seeing, what we're all seeing really is we are putting phones. So screens in the hands of toddlers, kids. It's Mm -hmm. not uncommon to see a two year old at a restaurant, right? Everybody's eating. And what's the toddler doing? They're watching Elmo. Shut up, kid. Yep, exactly. And then they become three and it's like, Oh, Elmo has a game now or, you know, whoever, whatever your favorite, whatever your favorite character is, whoever they are, they've got a game or they've got an interactive kind of app. So where it's not, it touches on the brain development. It touches on also though, just attachments and how we used to have to regulate our kids and entertain our kids. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we talk about healthy eating habits. Well, when you're staring at a screen, you can put anything into a kid's mouth or in their hands. They're mindlessly eating as well. Mm. So we're seeing these really poor patterns. And I think that one of the things that parents don't realize is that when you start doing this, um, you know, under 18 months, two years old, and you start these habits that you don't think maybe are that big of a deal, they actually really are. And I think that's probably what you're alluding to in my post. They affect obesity rates. They affect our rates of ADHD diagnoses. They affect social interactions. They affect the way that you attach and bond with your parents and how you communicate. They affect your own ability to be creative because when you're spending all of your free time on a screen, you don't feel bored. You don't feel like, huh, what am I gonna do? I guess there's Legos here. Uh, Let me build a rocket ship or spaceship and have to use your creativity. Your mind, it's like hijacked. It's like, oh, you're bored? Let me entertain you. And you never have to think for yourself in terms of like what to do with creativity. So when we look at 21st century skills, we know that working together in groups, 
and being highly creative are two skills that are only in more demand than ever. And screen times is taking that away. What about the parents that say, well, Elmo or whoever, it's an interactive learning game. So they're learning their alphabet or learning whatever skills earlier. Is that true or barely? Uh, Barely. So, and you know, maybe if you used it, probably the way on a package or some sort of disclaimer is suggested, it might be 20 minutes a day. So sure, absolutely. I am not, I'm very moderate in almost all of my views because I don't think anything should be one extreme or the other. But I think, Mm -hmm. you know, I certainly am an advocate of children under the age of two really never being in front of screen. That I'm, I am a little bit like, no, under age two. No. Um, But, you know, being realistic, sure. If you've got a three-year-old that wants to, you know, loves Elmo and you've got a 20 minute game and and like mom needs to jump in the shower or needs to do something. And you're really conscious about what you're doing. You're present to what you're doing. I certainly, I have a four-year-old and he watches a show a day. So it's 23 minutes long. There's no commercials because I don't like kids watching commercials. And I do it as a tool for me. It is a tool. Like I need to get something done or I need to get an email out. Okay, you get to watch, you know, Paw Patrol right now kind of thing, you know. But what happens is that nobody's really playing the interactive educational game for 20 minutes. It's going Mm -hmm. longer. And we're actually looking at sort of the addictive nature of the way these games are made. And I know it sounds terrible, but you earn things. No, they are. Yeah. So what they're, if we're following research on like gambling addiction and just addictions in general, it starts really young, even with these educational games, because they reward you and they give you gold coins or they give mm-hmm. you, you know, things you collect in a little shopping bag. And the way our minds are wired is we like reward. It's like, oh, yeah, that's an incentive. And so we're starting kids' young, young brains off very early to basically say, you know, it's like picture them in front of a slot machine. Maybe that would help a parent. You know, you're if you have your kid, you know, in front of that educational game for more than 20 minutes a day, you might as well, you know, put them in front of a slot machine and see how that goes. You know, and it's it's really pretty much the equivalent. Yeah, because I don't think well, and and as you said, the games are built to be more addictive, but they're also built. To spend money. So yep. at some point, you can't go any further and mom's looking at 99 cents or whatever. And that's just not going to work. So gone are the days that parents are um, – but they got Pinterest. They got all this baking stuff. They probably have 100 mm-hmm. crafty ideas. And I don't have kids, so that's easier said than done. But I'm a big fan of like when I play with my nieces. Let's go play soccer, basketball. We're going to play wrestling. We're going to do all kind of fun stuff. And um, that was one of my hangups one time about having kids. I was like, man, you got to do that all the time. <laughs> like all day, every day after a 12-hour day at work, you got to come home. And you got two or three hours of like doing this stuff or you can put them in front of a TV. Right. Right. But. So here's the thing. Here's the here's the tie in a little bit to, to what I write about in Mommy Burnout. I'm really looking at. So I'm looking at the way that our culture is currently set up. That's causing moms to do things like this. I mean, when I'm not I am not faulting or or even saying, oh, I don't understand why kids are spending hours in front of a screen. I do understand it's a. It's a simple way to keep your kid quiet, contained, right? Because we don't have the kinds of environments where kids are just out all day long, come home when the sun goes down, right? So Mm -hmm. whether we should or not is a whole nother topic, but it's just sort of not the general culture of the way children are being raised. So, And now what we have are mothers, majority of mothers work outside of the home. So, And what we know about what's causing burnout in women is that Work never ends. We have an all on, always on culture. So, um, you know, they're, they're looking still at their phone while they're driving home. They get home and they're returning a quick email, grabbing a quick call. And then they've got their kids who haven't seen them. And so there's, it's a lot for, um, I'm, I am focusing on moms right now. I think it could probably pertain to fathers as well, but in terms of a mother's role, mothers are juggling a lot and they, are juggling their own 24-7, always-on culture. And so it's easier. Sometimes they start off with good intentions, right? I'll just let them watch one show to let them get one. I just got to cook dinner. Right. I just got to. I just got to fill in the blank. And before you know it, you're like, oh, crap, especially on a weekend, um, Uh you know, where the day is really long. And what we know is that, you know, women and men, but people, parents in general, they don't stop working on weekends. 
You know, even right. teachers, even some professions that you might think, oh, well, no, teachers spend Sundays preparing lesson plans and moving on. And never mind if you're, you know, maybe like a, a CFO or you're, you're a manager of some sort, you know, you've got things, you've got emails coming in that the sort of the expectation is you're always going to answer them, right? You're, you're going to answer yeah. my questions. I got a question, you got an answer and it's quick. So I think what has started off as being, you know, seemingly harmless, you know, I just want to get through a, a lunch. I just want to, mm -hmm. oh gosh, this meal will be, I want to go to a restaurant once in a while. It starts off there. And before you know it, these hours and minutes add up. Yeah. Well, I like, if we could, one more little rant, maybe about, um, I call them participation awards. There's probably some PC term for it. But uh, what are your feelings about that? Why is it good? Why is it bad? I'm guessing they had good intentions to start with. So give us a, give us your insight on that, if you don't mind. Yeah, this will be probably a little of a rant. <laughs> but do you remember where, uh, I think it was like a year, year and a half ago, there was an NFL football player that tweeted something about like, my son got a participation award. Like, what is this? There's no participation awards in our house. You know, you win yeah, and you break lose. across our knee. Right. So I, you know, when that came out, I was asked to come on and do some local media around, you know, what are, same question. What are your opinions about that? And, um, you know, my opinion, and even recently I <clears throat> did a segment like that, but my opinion is also, I, I agree. I think that we are giving kids accolades and positive um, reinforcements all the time to the point mm -hmm. where what we know about at least the older millennials and maybe some post millennials as well is that it's difficult for them when they get in the workforce to take constructive feedback. And it's difficult to understand that not everybody's a winner. And mm -hmm. it's a harsh reality when you get into the world, when you've been raised as a child to say, like, even if you came in last place, like, you still get a ribbon. I mean, when I grew up and maybe you, you know, maybe that I was a runner. So the top three people got medals. Number four didn't get a medal. Um, maybe for mm -hmm. state meets, larger meets, the top six did. But, you know, it's all proportionate to the number of people competing. Like at some point you came home with nothing at all, except for yeah. your coach talking on the bus about how you like you need to run faster and train harder. And now that's not at all what would happen. Everybody does go home with a ribbon. Um, and everybody feels like a winner. And I will say it's, I, I, um, have experienced this both professionally. Um, those are my thoughts professionally. I think it's helpful for kids to understand that there really are, there are people who win, you lose, whether it's a board game or an athletic event or, you know, who's the top of the class in math. And it's not always fair. Life's not fair. That's a big mantra of mine. It's not always fair, but you know, my, my son just participated, my older son, in a football tournament a couple weekends ago and they came in, they were the runner ups. They came in second place and um, they weren't expecting anything. And, but the league had, you know, the larger trophy for the winners and then the second place, you know, the runner ups got a smaller trophy. And yeah, I saw all the boys faces light up. I mean, they now they didn't care that they didn't win because they still walked out with a sweet trophy. And so I was huh. quietly processing, what, how do I feel about this? What did I think? Um, That's a tough one. It is a tough one. I mean, I'm... Because at that age... Seven years old. They're seven and eight-year-old boys, right? Yeah. So it's like you want to keep them motivated and they love those kind of trophies. Um, but they also, they didn't win. So it's, I think it's one of those things where I wish that this was just a vacuum kind of issue where you could talk about ribbons and trophies. But it unfortunately applies to so much that yeah. it's not just in like athletics that this is an issue. It's all over the place. It's an issue. It's you're a winner. You're great. You're smart. You're the best. You can do anything. Even the you can do anything message to girls. Um, you know, there's, you know, some people would beg to differ with that. Like certainly mm -hmm. girls have a lot more opportunities than ever. I don't know, but can you really do anything? But yet those are the messages. So it puts pressure. So there's my rant on I think in general, yeah. we need to teach kids about winning and losing and fairness. Well, just two follow-ups on my end is, one, with football, only one person gets a ring. But like in karate, which is what I did, second place and third place did get a trophy. Uh-huh. You know, it was – and if only the first place, I guess. I don't know. That could be – maybe it's demotivating enough where I was like, I, I'm not normally a number one player. 
I'm usually number two or three in the karate reel back then. And if I never got a trophy or anything, I don't know. I might have quit competing because it's like, man, I, I just I know I'm not number one. But dang, second place is pretty good, too, usually. Yeah. But uh, I don't remember. I mean, who played in Super Bowl last? last year? I don't know. What about last place? La- man, you need to try harder, man. Right. That's just not going to work. But last still gets a ribbon. Yeah. Today, last Congratulations. Place, right. They still, or this is what they get. They get the participation trophy, medal, or ribbon. So, uh-huh. you know, and so, but you could debate with me. That's fine. It just says you participated. But when you're younger, it's still a symbol of some sort of accomplishment that for some people they yeah. think, well, what was that accomplishment? Is it motivating the enough? Work. Right? Yeah. I remember for us, if if we went to a tournament and you got a piece of paper that said first place, we were not happy. No. Because sometimes you can get a three-foot trophy for first place and you're giving me something you could have printed at Kinko's. <laughs> Come on, you cheapskates. That's right. But now I, I'm curious too, one more time, is when he talks about moms, there's there's some women that they don't really want the job. They just want to be a mom and 24-7, I love it. This is what I want to do. I want to homeschool my kids, not because I'm crazy, but for other reasons. And maybe not even to that extent, but that's their goal in life is to be a mom. And it almost feel like nowadays, if that's all you want in life, there's women groups out there that bash you and say you are what's holding us back because you don't want to have the 40 hours a week and uh, daycare and all this other stuff. Any opinions on that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, there used to be something referred to as the mommy wars. Right. So that's the stay at home moms versus the working moms. And mm-hmm. sometimes there are there are issues that will kind of bring that up again. And one of the things that I write about in Mommy Burnout is I say, I think if and I call them at home moms because I say stay at home moms, never stay anywhere. They are as no. busy as can be. They're driving all over the place. They're shopping. They're never staying put anywhere. But these at home moms, what I want to see is a shift from. So, you know, not just being like, oh, well, I just stay at home, but but really taking it like this is a career, like, right? This is yeah. a career choice. You have the most important job ever. I mean, for me, just even staying home on maternity leaves was too much. I am not cut out to be a full-time at-home mom. I am not good at yeah. that, you know? And I can I try to openly admit that because I'm trying to model for people, like, if that's your life's dream is to be a homemaker and you want to, you love cooking meals. You are a Pinterest mom. You want to be the volunteer for everything. Like own that, rock that, like be, the, we need that, right? We totally, we really need that and be the best that you can be and be proud of it. Um, yeah. you know, and, and make it a respected, respected job. It is a vocation, right? And, and I do think it is a job. And Eight so, hours a day with a kid. Oh my goodness. Right. All day home, cleaning, cooking, because the childcare part is one part of it. But when you're an at-home mom, you have to do everything else. You have to food shop, you have to cook, you have to clean relentlessly mm-hmm. and do laundry mm-hmm. and all these other things. And so I just, I want to see the movement where that is a res- very respected position that women choose, yeah. you know, and that they also own it. Like this is, I'm um, like, I'm a career mom and I'm yeah. a great career mom. You know, I'm at the top of my game. Like, I think that's the mentality that both sides need to have because our kids need that. They need moms who, if they are home, love being home. Or they don't love every aspect of it, but they really re- they have respect even in their own selves. And they feel like it has purpose, which is one of the things I see with working with so many moms is sometimes an at-home mom just feels like, is this it? Like, is this my whole purpose? Is this my existence? Cooking, cleaning, and changing diapers and sometimes you know they feel lost within that yeah i can see that for sure well if this excites anybody her book on me burnout catch it when it comes you can probably get pre-release uh sale i'm sure right now right now there we go (laughs) so we're gonna we're gonna switch gears a little bit here on as far as like psych d the field that you're you're you specialize in with kids and families are there any common misconceptions or maybe common things that patients come in Clients, like, do y'all call them patients or clients? We call them both. I I mostly call them okay. clients. Um, for me, common issues that so in my practice, I see in one week I see half adults and half kids, and the adults that I see generally are about parenting issues. Uh, could be mm. co-parenting through divorce. It just could be blending families. It could just be parents who you know want some new ideas, things like that. So. The kids that I see, the most common issues, absolutely number one, without a doubt, are generalized anxiety disorders. 
anxiety. Really? Oh, yes. Number one. Number one. Absolutely. What age? Ages seven and up. Wow. Yeah. Anxiety. Life's supposed to be easy at this time. Yeah, no, not at all. And so um, it's it's very interesting. Um, there's a subset of the kids that I see with anxiety that are the highly gifted kids. So the kids that mm. might be pulled out at school for, you know, gifted and talented, um, very, very bright kids. And when you have a very bright kid, there's there can be this profile to them, which they are perfectionists. Um, they don't want to try things. They'd rather not try something new if they don't think that they can master it rather than try it. So mm-hmm. they have a hard time sometimes taking risks. Um, they very much have a hard time with failure. So with those kids, we work on their anxiety, but we also work on risk taking and messiness in life and lots of gray so that, you know, they don't view the world as black and white, good or bad. There's lots of gray in the middle. So that would be my number one profile of a of a client. And, and in my practice, there's myself and eight other therapists. So oh, wow. all of us, we see um, kids with anxiety would probably be number one. Um, number two would probably be divorce. So kids that are going through divorce, families that are going through divorce, and um, just how to navigate it, because there really is a way to do it well, as well as could be, right, to make make the best out of a really difficult situation. And ways that just people miss the mark and there's tension and there's kids that are having all sorts of issues. They're regressing. They have anxiety. They might get depressed. They might rebel. If they're adolescents, they might start experimenting with drugs. It's a really tough, you know, as much as we maybe as adults are used to divorce and it being nearly, you know, half half the country, half of married couples. Um for kids, it's still really, really difficult. So there are ways to do it where your kid like can really be okay. You know, they can, they can be the best that they can be. So that's probably the second thing that I do. So it's anxiety and divorce for me. Isn't that interesting that as adults, we, I I don't know, I think at this point, most parents know that divorce is going to be hard on the kids, but it's really interesting that it would even be that way. Uh, Cause I kind of look at it as like, that's nothing to do with you kid. Like it really doesn't. I just hate your mom. And, uh, (laughs) but, but that plays out, I guess, in all these different ways. And then I guess whenever I was a kid, you didn't really have a lot of divorce. You didn't see it except for like a couple of the crazy ones, you know, the crazy kids that were acting out. You're like, oh, but you're like, I don't know, it could have been abused or their kids, their parents were alcoholics. But divorce didn't really play in. But now whenever I'm seeing kids that are around 16 to 18, 24, it seems like a lot of them are just like, why would I get married? Like everybody's divorced. It doesn't. It was brutal. I saw it in my dad. I saw it in my mom. I'm not I'm not ever getting married anymore. Yeah. And so it's kind of eroding the whole the whole institution, it seems like. Well, you you know what? You are you're absolutely right because um what we see in in millennials and post millennials is that they are um getting married at lesser rates. They are living with people more often rather than necessarily getting married. So it's certainly happening. Uh oh. Where'd you go? I'm frozen, but can Yep, now I hear you again. Okay, good. The last like twenty seconds was was gone. Like you were saying, um, they they live together more often than getting married. Right. So we see that in um, in the millennials and post millennials that they are um, they are having a different approach to marriage, and that marital rates are actually down because of that. They've they rather cohabitate um, or just date or. You know, also women don't feel like they have to get married in order to have children. So the option of starting families without, you know, feeling like you need to have a life partner or a husband is on the table for women these days. Does that have any... Now, I, back when I was in school, I was a psychology major. It was cohabitating really messed up the marriage rates. Like it doubled your rate. It was not really a good idea to go from a cohabitation to being married. Is that still accurate or? It actually or is what? still accurate. <laughs> it is. <laughs> the Yes, the research will still show that if you live together, you're more likely to get a divorce. Um, <clears throat> so the research does show that. In the first couple of years or what? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know if I know the distinction. Um, okay. But in general, it's still considered, yeah, that it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't help um, the longevity of marriages. Um, but I think what now millennials and post-millennials are doing is just simply saying we are going to cohabitate, period. We don't intend to get married. We don't need marriage. Um, right. So that is something that is different. Okay. Interesting. 
Well, if you were to have any students come by and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing what you're doing, or you have some doctors out there, they're like, I'm not making it. Either I'm burning out or I'm not making the money that I thought of. Do you have any advice for these types of individuals? I do. And I would say that I I try to, you know, mentor some students. I try to mentor young professionals. I say that one of the things that can happen when you're in psychology program, whether that's a master's program or a doctoral program, is there's two things. One of them is you some some still get this message that like, well, you don't go into this field to make money. Uh, you know, you just go into this field to help people. And why has it got to be like that? Right. I want to make some money and help right. people. And I and that's what I'm here to say is I think you can do both and do both with integrity. It is hard to get into the mind of sometimes like a helper, helping professional, but you know, sometimes those things are uncomfortable because the spirit of where a helper comes from is generally, you know, just wanting to do good in the world, right? And oh, if money mm-hmm. comes along with it, then great. But I think that you can still have integrity. You can still want to be the best therapist or physician or whatever you want to do. In this case, the best sort of psychotherapist or psychologist that you can be and make money and feel okay about that. And it's, it's part of it is valuing yourself, which the more mm-hmm. we value ourselves, the better we are for our clients. And so, um, so that's the first piece of advice that I give people. And the other one is that this profession in my mind is limitless. Um, you can do so much. I mean, I have, um, like you said, I've written a book, I blog, I write, I contribute to uh, national media outlets. I do, I'm a news contributor anywhere from sometimes once to three times a week. Um, So I'm really, in my profession, I've gotten to do so many things. I've been on a a marijuana education panel. I do public speaking. Um, There isn't too much that I don't do. I mean, so I'm on radio and TV and panels and speak in front of business groups, educational groups, teachers. Um, There this field is limitless because what we have is something everybody needs. We understand the way human beings work. We understand the way child development unfolds. And there are, whether it's corporations or schools or businesses that need that kind of information. So if there's anything that I would share with somebody who's considering going into this field is think big, because I think that we've got so much to offer, especially right now. Mental health is at the top of everyone's um, thoughts in terms of we need to improve mental health. We know we need to improve mental health. What do we need to do? So we need people who have all different kinds of backgrounds, people who want to do research, but people who want to do public speaking, people who want to create, let's say, the next bullying program. You know, we need yeah. we need so much. And these are all things that you can make money at. They don't have to be pro bono. Absolutely. You can make you can do webinars. You can create workbooks. You can, mm-hmm. you know, go around to schools all over the country and talk about, you know, character education programs. There's the sky is the limit. And those kinds of places, what I always reiterate, even pediatricians, they need us. They need people to refer to. They need to know what to do when, you know, a kid comes in and they're anxious, a kid comes in and they're suicidal. They need to know who to go to and what resources are available. And so we can provide those things for them. Um, in all sorts of fields. So I'm so happy and enthusiastic about our field because it applies nearly almost everywhere. You know, and I like to ask about marketing questions and you could definitely have a different answer, but it seems like you're already mentioned a couple workbooks, online stuff, consulting with your pediatricians and trying to get your foot in the door in their offices. You got any other great ideas to get clients? Yeah. I mean, I think... Um, Part of getting clients is your number one source is always going to be referrals. So you want to maintain really positive relationships, like if you're working with kids, with the parents. You want to have a lot of communication. Don't want to just be like, hi, okay, I'm taking little Joey back. I'm going to do therapy with him for 50 minutes, and then I'm going to come out and wave goodbye to you. Um, That actually, to me, it's not, you know, it's certainly part of the therapy process. But if you think of it, part of marketing is parents want to know, well, what did you guys just do? And what can I do? And if they feel like, hey, this person's great for my son, but also great for me, has made me a better parent, I'm more likely to brag about 
you to other people. And moms are going to be, have a lot of buying power and they also have a lot of power in terms of word of mouth. So that's number one. Your number one client is the parent and probably more specifically the mom. Um, Mm -hmm. But number two are going to be, yes, other physicians and pediatricians. You want to, you know, send them a quarterly letter, keep them on your newsletter list, have a, have a newsletter. You know, what are you up to? Have a great website and make sure you have a blog on it and blog about things. So people get a sense of you. Um, And those are, you know, nowadays really easy things that you can do. And any opportunity like me, especially when I started off, but even now, I don't say no to anything. I say yes to pretty much everything, um, you know, that I'm interested in doing because just never know. You never know what opening or what collaboration is there or who was listening or, um, so, you know, especially in the beginning, take speaking opportunities. Um, and it doesn't matter if your group is 12 people, sometimes that's all you need for three or four of them to walk out and go tell somebody who tells somebody. So, you know, I would say though, there's two things. Therapists generally don't have a good business sense and they don't have a good marketing yeah. sense. You know, it's just right. really, it's not what you're taught. You're not taught it. Number one, but you can hire these types of people too, by the way. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, those are those are some some marketing ideas. I think there's plenty of them. I think advertisements are less. I would save money on advertising because it's such a personal field that people yeah. want their doctor or their neighbor or the mom friend at, you know, car line to give you the stamp of approval so that they feel comfortable. Yeah. Agreed. I like it. Everybody should not have just, this should not have been the first time anybody's heard these things, but it's good to hear it again and that it actually bridges not just in chiropractic and physical therapy, but in psychology and in counseling. It's, it's almost the same stuff, just tweaked for your profession. Absolutely. That's great to see. And they are, they are basic things, but you, you need to know, you need to put yourself out there and know how to communicate with people. And that goes back to your, almost your first question about like, if we have kids who are spending too much time you know, on computers and in front of screens, they don't have the practice to go up to a complete and total stranger and say, hi, my name is so-and-so and I have this new therapy center. I'm offering, you know, these services and I would love for you to consider, you know, referring your patients. That takes confidence. A lot of, and the, the fear of rejection because yeah. gatekeepers can be serious in some of these offices. Yes. And you know what? You just hit on the right thing. It is, if you get past the gatekeeper, the, the physician or the pediatrician is the easy one. You got to get past yeah. the secretary and the nurses. Mm-hmm. Not the easiest. Yeah. And then, like I said, there's there's programs out there that you can talk to. You can probably, you know, contact me if you wanted to. But there's ways to, to do that and people who figured it out that you can pay them to learn their secrets. Absolutely. You know? You're right. Well, we've only got a few more minutes left with you. So... We're going to shift gears. I always love these questions coming up. When we're talking about entrepreneur, we don't work for a hospital usually. What are a way to take vacation? And if you can't, is there a way to take more? Yeah, you know, so there's um, there's some research that I came across on this topic as well, because so much of what I emphasize in mommy burnout to obviously avoid burnout, especially in the caring and helping professions is self-care. And we hear that term self-care so much, you know, probably feels like, yeah, 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 yeah. I've heard that. But what especially I, in Denver area. Yes. Denver's there <laughs> health oriented. And um, but what I would say is that here's the funny thing. So they say that in order for you to get true rejuvenation benefits from a vacation, you actually need to go on a two week vacation. Because the first two weeks, two weeks, because the first week is just coming down from all of your stress. This is just so I've I've broken it down to different ways. Right. So most of us are not going to take a two week vacation. Right. But if we can take mini vacations throughout the year, those kinds of things are add up. So you don't have to wait till you've got seven to ten days to go to Maui or something. Um, Wherever you live, if you can take mini vacations, sometimes for some people, even a staycation where you're just at home, but you take a couple days off. Those things go a really long way we need. And, and the quality of what we do on the vacation is also very important. So just simply because you're laying on the beach in Hawaii, it doesn't even mean that you are relaxing. If you You could have not turned off at all, right? If you're not turned off, it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, sitting in your town you're from or you're in Maui. You're not going to get the benefits that vacation should be giving you that you need to rejuvenate, to take care of yourself. 
And so just unplugging is a great favor you can do for yourself. You know, maybe you do that Sundays. Maybe you start unplug. Pick one day of the week where you truly are unplugged. Um, and just plan <coughs> mini vacations, places that you can drive to. What's a mini vacation length? Three days, four days? Yeah, I think three days at a minimum. Okay. Um, and, you know, so again, I mentioned this like phrase before, but doing it with intention is so important. So like here, I'm in Denver. So for me, a mini vacation would certainly be to drive to the mountains, which yeah. is like glorious, right? So I would love, let's say I drive up to Vail. But if I drive up to Vail and I have my work bag with me and I intend to return 25 emails, but it doesn't matter because I'm going to take a hike. You know, mm -hmm. I find that I'm just not, I'm not really reaping the benefits of the sunshine and the trees and the oxygen and all the things that are so therapeutic about being in nature. And so yeah. I, I need to make commitments. And so, and I try to do that. And I will say as a therapist, it's very important that I do that. Um, you know, I work hard, but I play hard. So I, when I'm done working, I need to be done working. And that's a boundary. I'm always working on it, but I'm very conscious of it. And it's made a huge difference. So Instead of maybe three days in Vail, maybe I do go two days because I'm going to spend one day at home finishing everything I have to do. So I drive up there, blaring the music, singing along, doing whatever it is that makes me happy. And, mm -hmm. I, and I have a clean plate. I'd rather have two quality days than three days that lack quality. And, you know, there's a big push right now to have an online online business of some sort or at least have some kind of passive income coming. But the, the joke, well, it's not a joke, perhaps, but it doesn't just run on autopilot. So even if you have an empire online, there's some maintenance that has to be done. So there's, I don't think there's something wrong with if you're in Maui, maybe there's an hour of the day each day, perhaps, that you actually spend some time working. Like I answer these emails, I make sure things are running. And now for the next rest of the day. I'm completely relaxed and I can actually unplug. But I do have to have that one hour a day, even on my vacation. I don't know if that's a bad thing if you can um, control it. Yes. And I think that is, um, I think that's consistent with what I'm saying. Like if you have intention, yeah. you know what I mean? This is the key, I think, um, I really see for kids and adults too. The key is that you feel in control of your own schedule. Once you yeah. start feeling like your email box controls you or the phone calls control you, it's over. But once you can say, and I agree with you, um, you know, I might drive up to Vail on a fall weekend and have my work bag and say, I'm going to be very intentional tonight. I'm going to work from six, you know, six to eight tomorrow morning. I'm going to work from seven to eight. And as long as I am, I feel in control and I really can obey my own boundaries and limits and then spend the day, mm -hmm. I'm free. And that's what you know, we're almost always striving for is this sense of freedom. That's what provides us yeah. with, you know, relaxation. So I agree with you. I think you can do that. But there's when I keep talking about this intentional or awareness, a lot of times when we're under stress, we kind of work on autopilot. And we do yeah. our same routines and rituals. And, you know, they say when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you should do is not look at your phone. But how many people do that? I think millions every day, yeah. you know. And so it's living life with intention that helps prevent burnout and it helps allow to enjoy the things that you do have at your disposal, like a mini vacation or a long vacation or even dinner with a friend. If you're staring at your phone and you leave your phone on the table, there's a little bit of an implication of I'm not totally present here. Oh, that's the worst. That is the worst, right? Like I'm here, but Man. if I get a text or a call that is more important than you, I might need to step away for a few minutes, you know, and it's sort of like this friendship culture that we have. We're like, we accept that from one another. And I don't think we should accept that from one another. Yeah. I've heard some people, they say the first person to pull their phone out has to pay. Yeah, that's a good For one. everybody's meal. Yeah. That's a good one. What is one piece of advice you could give to make sure that you keep your marriage healthy or a spouse, whatever? Right. I mean, a significant other. Okay. In general? In general? Yeah, parents? in general. Yeah. Definitely for parents. Yeah. Okay. For parents. Okay. So I'll, I'll take this one off of one of the... Uh, one of the articles that I just recently wrote, and it was, I think the biggest piece of advice is carving out time where you have kid-free talk times. So, Ooh. you know, you might feel great about yourself right now because you're like, yeah, me and my husband do date night, you know, once a week or whatever, once a month, whenever you do date night. And you feel great about it. But when you break down, so I got this truly just from working with my own clients. But when I would break down with them, their wonderful dinner, and what did you talk about? 
most of the time. Uh-huh. They're like, the kids. Oh, we talked about the kids and what are we signing them up for? And and I'm not even saying necessarily some of sometimes it was contentious, but sometimes it was just they felt like we have no time to talk. So then they use their date night to talk about the kids or school, the teacher, whatever it's going to be. Is the game plan instead of right. getting to know each other. Exactly. Again. Instead of like, so what I say now to the clients I work with, and it works. So that's why I share it. I try not to share things mm-hmm. that I haven't either walked myself or other people haven't is I just say right. to them, I just say, okay, so um, what's your, you know, like what's your date night plan for the next few weeks? And they say, oh, we're going to go to dinner Saturday night. Okay, great. So how many minutes, and I say minutes, how many minutes do you think you need to talk about the kids? Or, or even want. Maybe you're even talking about how great they're doing. Doesn't matter, but just talk about the kids. And then they kind of laugh and they'll pick a certain amount of time. Sometimes they'll just say, I think we just need like 15. Sometimes they'll say, I think we need a good half hour. I don't care what their answer is. That's great. Who's going to be the timekeeper? You know? Uh, so you sit down. Yeah. Are you going to do it over the app? Are you going to do it on the drive down? Because date night to me starts the second you're in that car or you're walking and you're by yourself with no kids. And and someone's a timekeeper, you legitimate, because you know what? You can talk about even pretty serious things about your kids in 30 minutes. I mean, therapeutic sessions are 50 minutes. We cover a lot right, in right. 50 minutes, you know? You yeah. don't definitely don't, I don't think you need more than a half an hour, again, unless there's a, an exception, for the most part, to just talk about how your kids are doing. And then yeah. be done. Be done. And then it faces you to have to talk about yourself or inquire about your partner, spouse, husband, whatever. And um, that gives you a lot of information. Did you have anything to talk about? Did you even have anything to talk about besides the kids? You might find out you need to go see a counselor. Right. So that you can get your relationship a little bit better. Exactly. But you got to clear the And that's kids. okay too. Yeah, you got to clear the kids stuff out of the way to see what is left there. Yeah, that's important. Last question. You got time? Yep. Okay. That was a great answer, by the way. Loved it. Um, books, blogs, podcasts, favorite apps on your phone, any Anything that you secretly love and definitely some resources that you just like everybody should be reading these things? Sure. I would say right now, um, I'll start off with my tried and true, which is Lean In. I'm a huge fan of Lean In. Mm -hmm. And uh, for women, especially working women or women who are thinking about, you know, thinking about working um, and raising a family. I love that book. And my second is Anything and Everything by Brene Brown. Brene Brown. Brene Brown. She is, you know, talks about shame and vulnerability and it is so powerful. And she's really the queen of, she really is, she's a researcher um, who really brought us her research and made it very real for people and how like the power of being vulnerable and talking about your shame is what makes you powerful, what transforms your life. And boy, Mm -hmm. I can't say enough about all of her books, but you know, you can start with uh, daring greatly. So that would be one of them. And um, as far as podcast or as far as um, an app right now, my favorite app would be headspace and um, headspace is guided meditations um, and guided imageries for people. And I can't just say enough about it. I mean, headspace, I have so many people on Headspace because it's so cool. It gets you it gets you in the mode and the mindset of having meditation be a daily part of your life and you can set timers on it. So you can, you know, because meditating is hard, especially in the beginning, five yeah. minutes feels like an eternity. So you can set timers, you can have you choose probably at this point from thousands of like it's like a catalog of what you even want to address, you know, are you anxious? Are you depressed? Are you nervous? What are you, what are you? So I'm a huge fan of headspace, um, as, as a way to, it is certainly like a stress response, but also just to preventative measures. So I'm a big fan of that. You know, I listen to different podcasts for different reasons. I mean, I love Tim Ferriss. Um, you know, he's great and, um, how things are built. I love that podcast and I particularly love an interview they did with Kendra Scott and um, she kind of just talks about how she built her empire and how she took risks and um, it's really a great interview. I mean, there's so many great ones, but that's just one that came to mind. Um, And Gretchen Rubin, she has a podcast on happiness 
and interview some pretty um, great people. So the coolest thing is that there's so much information out there for us. Yeah. So anything you want to find, it's out there somewhere. Agreed. Well, Dr. Cheryl Ziegler, how can people get in more contact with you, find out more information and all of that? So people can check my website out, which is drcherylziegler.com. Uh, Spell that, please. D-R-S-H-E-R-Y-L-Z-I-E-G-L-E-R.com. Thank you. Um, so on there are <clears throat> lots of um, all my blogs and my media contributions and, you know, pre-order information for Mommy Burnout. Um, and for more information on the book, Mommy Burnout, which is out February 20th, 2018, um, you can go to mommyburnout.com. And, um, you know, at this point, I'm available for speaking engagements um, and kind of book signings. Very good. You heard it here. I'm excited for your book because just everything that we talked about, if it's anything like that, that's going to be a page turner. Congratulations uh, on writing that for sure. And thank you so much for spending your time on A Doctor's Perspective. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I've got some new things to talk about. Of course, you can always review us. Give us that five-star review on wherever you listen. But I got four new t-shirts. You know, there's chiropractors, some of them that just like to adjust. There's some like me who do rehab and, you know, decompression and cold laser, things like that. And we call us straights versus mixers. So I created some mixed tour shirts. Uh, they're supposed to be kind of tongue-in-cheek. Hope you like them. Also, the Atlas I've removed the dins, so therefore, check that out. Maybe you'll like that better. Today's Choices Tomorrow's Health Book, version 2.0, is now out. We got nerve stretches, optimal calorie counter calculators, a section on fasting, and a big old section on how to budget and try to get your financial life in order. All the things that I talk about all the time. It's over 100 extra pages, so get it now. Bonus, my new hot off the presses book, Needleless Acupuncture, self-treatment guide for 40 common conditions is finally finished. It's been a in the works for quite a while. Stop the hurting with no needles or meds. Your roadmap to self-treat your conditions painlessly with needleless acupuncture. It's got pictures. It has descriptions. It has, of course, the conditions. And I plan to have video tutorials soon. Just go to the website and check it out. Also on the website, look on the top right. All the social media icons are right there. Whichever you like to follow me on, click that button and say hello. We just went hashtag behind the curtain, and this episode has come to an end. I hope you got the right dose for your optimal life. Please spread the word about this podcast by telling two friends, sharing on social media, and visit the show notes on a doctorsperspective.net to see all the references from today's guest. A sincere thank you in advance. You've been listening to Dr. Justin Trosclair, giving you a doctor's perspective.